MFs, welcome back. Hustle like you broke. This might be episode number 30. Amazing how the time flies. We have started this in the time of COVID, Groundhog Day, every day, except when you are listening to us here on the podcast. It's been a great ride. I hope we keep going. I hope this continues well past COVID. I hope COVID is over before much longer. But yet here we are. Today is July 16. It is our second recording of the day. We just wrapped a great one, which presumably drops two days before this. I believe that one will come out on July 28th, will have come out on July 28th, because by the time our listeners are listening to me here today, it should be July 30. And uh, that first one was Beth Crudis and Larry Cancro from the Boston Red Sox and Fenway Concerts and Entertainment. We hope that Beth has made it back from her, her lapse around Mars and out into the stratosphere. We hope that our audio problems will not be an affliction to today's episode. But continuing the trend of diverse programming, because that is what we do here at Hustle Like You Broke, we have another new field to introduce on the program today, the world of pyrotechnics. That's right, coming off the 4th of July, where I have never seen so much fireworks before in my life, the timing could not be better. And one of our three, yes, three guests joining us today, another first, he also has a substantial experience in a field we have not touched yet, the world of wrestling. No doubt we will get into that before long. But before we get to that, let's briefly remind our viewers. First and foremost, this is an election year. I hope I know everyone is fully aware. We hope you will vote. We also hope, as we've said so many times before, when you are out in public, please Wear a fucking mask. Just wear a mask. In the absence of a cure, and until that happens, if that happens, that's all I ask. Be courteous, be respectful, be all those things, but above all, wear a mask. I hope my co-hosts agree with that. Am I right, Dallas? Absolutely. I cannot stress it enough. The mask is key. Brother Banks. I've got my mask on right now. You know, I'm fully committed. I don't know what the fuck that was, but okay. Um, Mr. Motherfucker, Kyle yeah. Hamilton. Yes, I'm about inhaling my own air. There it is. Now, this being the second recording of the day, in instances where we've done that before, I tend to spend less time in monologue going off on Dear Leader and the fucked up state of the world. But I just want to ask one question today. Why in the fuck would the White House prefer the CDC remove all hospital data from their website and instead send it directly to the White House for them to disseminate rather than sharing it directly with 
the public. Anybody got a good reason other than the obvious implication that political motivations are more important to this administration than actually telling the truth and hopefully saving lives? Kyle, I know you hate when we talk about spikes. Do you have any thoughts, any reason at all why the White House would act this way? Absolutely not. Uh, the White House has uh, looked at this whole situation. I mean, they literally have politicized this whole situation. I mean, it's a health pandemic. It's, it's people getting sick. It's not Republican or Democrat. It's literally about a virus that's, you know, killing people and 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 is a stealth virus to others. But at the end of the day, it's nonpartisan. So how you can make this, if you wear a mask, you're weak and you're a Democrat. And if you don't wear a mask, you're strong and a Republican. And now, you know, all those people who went to that uh, little Republican party that they threw a few weeks ago, a lot of people wore out as a result of it. Um, but and they, they still make it in a partisan situation. I think that's asinine. Well, let me add a little fuel to that fire because I totally agree. On Monday of this week, this stat's going to blow your mind. On Monday of this week, the countries of France, Italy, Spain, Germany, the UK, Canada, Japan, Australia, and South Korea reported a combined total of 3,023 new cases. These are countries, mind you, that are doing a much better job of testing than we are. And they reported 3,023 new cases. The U.S., on the other hand, in a country where we have not done a good job of testing, where we intentionally under-report and under-test, because as the president said, well, if we test more, we'll have more cases. Well, no shit, you fucking idiot. In the U.S., 55,300 new, new cases were reported on Monday. 55,300 in one country, 3,023 in nine other countries. Does anybody see the disparity there? Is, is it just me? Those nine countries, to be clear, have a total population combined of approximately, I did the math, feel free to check it for yourself, 560 million people versus the U.S. population of 328 million people. So really, if you did the math and you broke it down, what we would have, if we were running the same rate as them, is 1,780 as opposed to 55,300. That, by the way, is a one-day total. One day! And that doesn't even take into consideration the potential spike that, on the date we are airing, people will know about in light of what happened on the 4th of July where people were congregating in mass. They were not wearing masks. 
somebody in the background has a friend or somebody talking. If they could tell them to shut the fuck up or mute their mic or whatever, I digress. But perhaps it's clear the White House prefers not to share data. Put differently, I saw this on social media the other day. This is kind of funny. The U.S. is currently experiencing more heat waves than ever before. But I'm not going to incite environmental factors or anything scientists might be saying because really, well, fake news. The problem is thermometers. We have more than anyone else. More than ever before. So really what we need to do is stop using thermometers because if we do that, then we'd have very few days over 80 degrees, if any. Wouldn't you agree, Dallas? Absolutely. It's very true. But Clearly. Clearly, that is the problem. Well, speaking of heat, I already said our guests to come to us with a background in pyro. And from what I hear, we're especially fortunate to have one of them with us today. Because there was a time when he very nearly killed himself and a friend, or more than one, falling through the ice using a concussion. But we'll get back to that story. I've worked with all three of these individuals at their former employers, as well as at their new company, Pyrotechnico. All of us have toured with one whose job was that of a shooter, person who literally has his hand on the trigger, fires off the pyro shots to align with the music, strategically placed, which is not so easy, mind you. He's also the one with an extensive background in the world of wrestling. The next one came up on the administrative, financial, and logistics side of the pyro business. Make no mistake, I am a big fan of hers. The last but not least, the COO, who managed to live through the concussion he exploded while ice fishing once upon a time, has built a reputation as one of the best in the business due to his knowledge of equipment as well as materials, the delicate balance between design and safety, which he has executed with clients as diverse as Metallica and Celine Dion. Please welcome to the program, friends of all of ours, Keith Hellebrand, Danielle Hicks, and Bob Ross. Welcome, everybody. Hello there. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Thank you for the introduction, Matt. I hope I introduced you accurately. I uh, would love to hear a little more about each of your stories. I tried to glance over them since we do have three of you here with us today. As I said, this is a first. We usually have one. A few times we've had two. It's great to have all three. Dallas was actually the one who initially suggested that we call you Keith, and it immediately struck me. We need you all. You all bring a great, diverse perspective. You're all amazing people. You're an amazing team, and why not? But if we could just go down the line, I'd love for each of you to tell us just a little more about us than I already did. And if we could go in the order where I started, Keith, please. 
Uh, yeah, I just started doing this last week. I read a manual, and I think uh, I'm going to do great. Uh, I think you will, too. I mean, the world of wrestling obviously taught you some lessons. Wrestling is where I really learned my chops. Um, that show is literally put together day of show and actually during the show. So there's a lot of changes, a lot of chaos. Um, so it definitely kept me uh, uh, on my toes and had to uh, make things happen like really quick. Two minute commercial breaks change everything. That kind of uh, madness. Pretty insane. And anything else about your career you'd have our listeners know, or should we just call you the wrestling guy for the duration? No, I mean, I did wrestling for a long time, but I, I mean, I did a lot of tours with a lot of pop groups and a lot of different genres uh, in the in the music industry. I did a lot of corporate shows in Orlando. Uh, a lot of, you know, lately, we're doing the last few years, TV shows, uh, award shows. Bob and I are like the award show guys. And Danielle uh, holds the fort and... Uh, we're either the three amigos or the three stooges. I'm not sure which yet. Well, I will say for our listeners out there that Keith, we've obviously toured together for a few years and you know, Keith is a great family man. Keith has actually been around for quite a while, though he doesn't quite let on to that. And he's being very modest about his experience, but he's also like, one of the biggest kids on tour. It's like, he's happy to be out. He loves life. He loves his job. Yeah. He's always smiling. And, uh, and it's just awesome. I do. I love it. I mean, how can you not? I mean, it's, it's uh, still to this day with 35 years and I just love it. So it's pretty exciting. I mean, and you get to play with fire, right? I mean, they actually paid me to do that. It's crazy. <laughs> I love it. No, it's really, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Now, Danielle, as I said, you came out kind of on the administrative logistics side of the business. Tell us a little more of your story, if you would, please. Um, I started in the business at, out of school. I was just taking a, a job to make some money and enter Bob Ross, and he ruined all of those plans for me. Um, ended up sort of moving up to the company through the industry and just uh, figuring out transportation of hazmat and, you know, all the quoting side for, for all of our lovely touring clients and award shows and, and just sort of uh, made a little niche for myself within, within the business in that way. Well, I appreciate the brevity, but I insist <laughs> that we get back to more of the day-to-day in logistics, planning, sourcing, permitting, etc. But we can, as I say, we can come back to that in a minute and turn the floor over to Bob. Oh, thank you, Matt. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I'll take full ownership for completely disrupting Danielle's life plans coming between college and teacher's college because teacher's college never got there. But uh but I'm proud of that moment. She's been a, uh, you know, one of the best teammates you could ask for, you know, and I, uh, you know, my history was, I came from a family of law enforcement and, uh, had been involved in high school theater and didn't really want to be a law enforcement officer. And just wasn't my, uh, wasn't my vibe and kind of was the second black sheep in my family by taking a different direction and studying, uh, you know, I was supposed to go to Place College up in uh, Elmer Academy, which is just outside of Toronto, and told my mom, I really don't want to do this. She said, well, if you're not going to go to Place College, you're going to go to some college. And uh, 
I started applying to technical theater and film production programs and when did my degree in theater production. And, uh, you know, I was really fortunate that, you know, in Toronto, there wasn't a huge, growing up in Toronto, there wasn't a huge touring market compared to what was on the U.S. Uh, on the other side of the border. And, you know, fortunately fell into uh, an opportunity, you know, pre-millennium with Pyrotech Special Effects, which was based out of Toronto. And as they were, you know, everyone was ramping up for that Y2K year. And I think I spent my, my first 16 months building confetti cannons just because of the, the, the push for uh, New Year's Eve to 1999 to 2000. And, you know, just kind of, I was very fortunate to have great mentors and continue a journey, continually build, you know, always hungry for more and continually wanting to take on and learn more about the industry. And it's been a... Uh, a 21 year journey so far. And uh, yeah, I look back at all the great moments I've had to share, whether it's with yourself, Keith and Danielle, and so many other great industry professionals I've had the chance to work with. So but, uh, never really looked that way. I, you know, never, never really started with special effects. I always wanted to be a, a scenic designer it was when I first went into theater pro a theater program. And uh just kind of stumbled across special effects and there was a need for somebody to come in and work. And I took that opportunity and some of my college classmates were already working there and they got me the opportunity to uh, come in and apprentice with that company. So 21 years later, here we sit. Well, let's stick with that theme of scenic design then just for a minute, since you mentioned that. So you came up wanting to do that wound up in pyro. I would argue there's substantial overlap between the two. Certainly pyro done right becomes not just a part of the scenic design, but can actually fit pretty seamlessly into the design. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, there's ourselves and, all of our great competitors out there, you know, there's some basic fundamentals of safety and distances to work with. And if you understand the, the environment or the stage that you're working with, there's a lot of great effects that you can implement into that. And, you know, as technologies increased as well as the quality of the stages and the scenic props we work with, we've really had the ability to integrate effects that, you know, are, are not visible to the audience until they actually are executed. So it allows for that surprise moment and that shock and awe, so to say, of, for the audience and the fans. Now, Keith, Keith, shifting over to you, since you're the shooter then, you know, why don't you tell us about some of those specific examples? Or why don't you give us a few specific examples of what Bob's saying of effects that fit seamlessly into a design? Oh, there's, there's many, like, uh, like if you have a waterfall effect coming out of the truss, um, you know, uh, with blending in with any kind of background scenic element, um, the way lighting plays along with it, um, many effects fit right in like that. Even like, uh, stuff on the stages and set pieces. Uh, we've done a lot of, of gags like that. We had Christine Aguilera on a motorcycle. Uh, fake motorcycle uh, doing pop and wheelies and we had smoke and sparks shooting out the back um, which really made it look really cool so there's a lot of integration like that where you can uh, really really showcase each 
uh, each set with that kind of stuff. It's really good. Very cool. So Bob, another thing you touched on then was safety. And I have to admit, you know, growing up in New England, I've talked on a couple of our podcasts about the station fire and the impact that had on so many in, in the Northeast in particular, but, you know, nationwide, industry-wide, I, I, I'll be honest, for years, I really feared pyro in shows. But safety, it really has come a long way. It is something that you guys take very, very seriously. It's not to say that there's never been any sort of issue, any sort of problem. I do remember a small fire happening in a truss once upon a time. I think it was a waterfall effect that caused it. Keith, am I right? Yes, that was a waterfall effect. I won't reference which tour that was because that's not necessary. But safety, again, is executed over and over again. And and it's not like, you know, home fireworks where people blow up their hands because they're fucking idiots. Like, you guys really understand the safety. Talk to us about that as a, as a major factor in pyrotechnics. I think, you know, my experience in working in the industry... You know, I've had some great designers I've had the opportunity to work with. And, you know, there's certainly, there's pushing close to the line and then there's crossing the line. And, you know, I was fortunate. I had a great mentor that uh, had always kind of instilled the mindset into me. You know, the decision you make today, when you make that decision, just think of one thing in your mind, which is, how am I going to testify about this tomorrow? And I probably say I'm not the most, I am far from the most cavalier pyrotechnician out there. In fact, I probably am more frequent to use the word no. And uh, I don't believe this is the right direction for an effect to some designers, which I know can, you know, no artist and producer likes or enjoys hearing the word no, or if they have an idea hearing, you know, a negative response to it. But at the end of the day, I've always looked at it as, you know, my job is to, you know, the job that I play for whichever company I'm working for at that time was to ensure that, you know, I protected the, the other 80 employees at the company that weren't in the field and that, you know, making sure their livelihood was protected by the decisions I made out in the field. And, you know, it's pyrotechnics have come a long way, especially more we, uh, as we've seen the growing market of flame effects and different types of liquid flame effects that have come into the market. And, you know, there's, there's certainly a layer of respect that you have to take into account. And it's, you know, especially when you get into different venues, you know, where every day a venue's circulation plays a factor in how our effects work. You know, whether you, maybe you have a flame bar that surrounds a drum, you know, the drummer's riser, you know, a, bad upstage wind can make an unfortunate situation for that artist and uh, could result in a injury, not to mention damage to their equipment. And you have, you know, so there's so many environmental factors that you're monitoring through the day, you know, no different than, you know, what we do. Keith and I've had so many, a number of award shows we've been part of that, uh, you know, in rehearsals, the climate acts one way, but knowing, you know, fortunately we've had the experience that knowing that during the show, 
know, if you're pushing six, 16 different sets in and out of that performance space for an award show, that back loading dock door is open. Now, and your front doors are now open in the building where in rehearsals they weren't because you have attendance coming in and you have a completely different airflow that you're working with. And that's certainly a one primary factor to, aside from just the physical distancing we talk about of safe distances from a, a special effect to an artist, to an audience member, or a, you know, a, a soft good being a set or a video wall or other surrounding areas. But uh, yeah, it's something that you constantly have to keep in mind while you're working through the day. It's definitely, you know, Keith and I've had, you know, I don't think, I can't think of a, uh, a period in my life that, you know, I think it's fair to say if you play with pyrotechnics, it's not if you have a fire, it's when you have a fire. And it's making sure you take every precaution to be able to anticipate that as well as manage it if the event, ha when the event happens. Well, I will say first and foremost that I appreciate that you say no more often than you say yes. That is, uh, you know, we trust you to be mindful of that and considerate of things that those of us might not be seeing or hearing or thinking about, like, you know, the doors being open versus closed and the difference that has. I, I read, I don't know if it's in a, a bio or if it was an interview that I, I was reading up on before this, uh, that you talk about the importance of respecting your equipment and materials. I think that's what you're referring to. Is that something you can talk a little bit more about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, uh, I, again, great learning lessons in life. I, uh, a good friend of mine that I'm still friends with him and I had an, a high school argument that, uh, yeah, led to a little physical violence. And back then, you know, the, you weren't being expelled or suspended or arrested for that matter. And, uh, you know, we swung at each other and I missed and I hit the, uh, the fire glass window in the door in the high school gymnasium. And, uh, yeah, the principal made me pay to replace the glass and also learn how to replace the glass with the janitor. And, uh, you know, he taught me that the day you stop respecting glass is the day you'll get cut. And I look back at, I've taken that forward with pyrotechnics, is the day you stop respecting the materials you're working with is the day you'll get hurt. And uh, I have a very specific moment that I, jeez, uh, it's got to be about 15 years ago where you know, I went to do a show and uh, it was a reduced budget show for a client that used to be huge and we went from more pyrotechnics in a single corporate event than Kiss and Metallica together in a single night. And we went to three gerbs. And uh, you know, I was twisting wires of a gerb together. And normally, you know, good, good protocol and safety is when you come in, you know, your experience with different pyrotechnic touring companies is they, they receive a pyro room, so they have a lockable area to keep their product. Generally, if you end up in a room that's carpeted, you'll throw some plywood down to create a non-static environment for yourself to walk on. And I'm like, ah, I have three gerbs. I'm not going to get plywood today. And sure enough, I was twisting three wires together, and uh, I saw the arc between the, the two wire leads, and I happened to be holding a gerb in my hand and got burned. And it was the day, you know, it was the day I cut a corner, and it bit me. And it's a... Uh, you know, I, you know, it's a, you just can't underappreciate the value of following the process. So 
Keith, why don't you expand upon that same line of thinking then? I mean, talk to us about the day in the life of a pyro shooter on tour and, and tell us a little more about some of those safety precautions that you're taking and the manner in which you are, as we said with Bob, respecting your equipment and materials. Yeah, the, the biggest thing on tour we always have to deal with is, the, is people smoking. Even in non-smoking venues, people still smoke. Uh, outside, people smoke and all around. So that's really the big thing. It always has been a big thing, um, is trying to keep everything away from the smoking people and, and the cigarettes. But that's why we have the lockable room. We're supposed to have a pyro room where we can do everything safely in this room. It can be locked so nobody have, has access to it. That's really a big part of it, keeping everything uh, away from everybody. And you do have times where you come out and have to load pyro in a truss, and there's pyro loaded, and there's stagehands working all over the place. And uh, it's just constantly just going ahead, you know, telling everybody, reminding everybody what's what's going on around them. Uh, I've had people come up and want to grab something, or what, you know, and look at it. They stick their face inside something. It's like you don't really know what you're doing. So I always remind them, and I tell you every time, it's probably the last time they've done that. So it's just keeping everybody aware around you uh, as it's going. Uh, It's a it's an all day event. You have to constantly, you know, keep an eye on that. So. You know, you just reminded me, and I'd never actually thought of this before. I'm pretty sure I have been inside every single room or room type, dressing room, artist room, crew room, production office, tour management office, promoter office, etc. I've never in my life been inside a pyro room. What what the fuck goes on in there? That's where the <laughs> that's where the magic is. That's I don't know if you want to open that happens. box. <laughs> oh, no, I'm exactly. opening it. Come on. Let's say, I, I wonder what this myself. Is on. That's where the What's magic happens. It's one of my biggest nightmares on tour because it's always the funny. It depends on the guys usually who are the pyro team, but it's always interesting what happens with that room that, <laughs> over the course of the day. Only, that's where they only load the concussions. That's uh, actually, you know what, honestly, the concussions get loaded right out, usually out on site, right on by the stage. Yo, why, fly them out. why do we have concussion? That is the worst well, situation ever in a show. And then you, you have to grab your ears. You, you have to not awesome. worry about blowing up the PA. It's crazy. It's an awesome effect when done correctly. See, and I, I would For say no, everyone. The only people say, who don't like you... it are the sound guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'd say, why don't you have two concussions? Because we gave up playing concerts in mono years ago. Yeah, one on each side. One on each side. <laughs> Times and, uh, 40. Yo, concussions are the worst. I hate, man, and, they never, and then when you, do the, when you do a test, when you're doing rehearsals, you never say where the concussion is going to go off. Oh, it's going to go off sooner or later. And then it just a random explosion. And then oh, you'll yeah. never forget from then on where it goes off. But that's no. not fair. You wear our ears out. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things that's been around forever. Uh, I, honestly, it's uh, I'm surprised it's still around as long as, you know, that it's even still around. I know you get a kick out of lighting them off, Keith, because you look at me after you've done it, like, uh-huh, you're going to ready, where are you? Well, you know, it's, you know, when you got something like that in your arsenal, why not, you know? 
I remember, I remember years ago, we used to have a, a shooter who I won't disclose the name out on the kid rock tour. And, you know, the cue used to be, my name is kid. And as, as he comes down, just before he hits rock, he'd drop a, you know, we hit a concussion. This guy's timing was just so off. And it was always, my name is boom. It ended up becoming his nickname because he'd hit it on the wrong moment. Four, yeah, out, of five nights, like... four out of five nights a week. And, you know, production wanted him replaced. And it just, you know, I think that was in 2001. We were, you know, yeah. we, were, we were a growing company and had no one to replace him. Yeah, the concussion is as mo- is just as important as a two and four on a and a drummer. You know, you gotta have it get the oh, concussion man. Has to get it right. Dead on, oh. absolutely. Oh, I remember. Talk that. to us about that a little more too, Keith. I I know I kind of busted your balls once upon a time because of a sequence of hits, and it was boom, 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 and it was in con- in succession. And as I understood it, you not only needed to be on the beat, but you had to be triggering ahead of the beat in order for it to go off on the beat, which complicates the matter substantially. Well, no, it's they're pretty much like when you hit the button, it goes. So there is no really delay with that. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's timing with the music. You got to stay on with it. You guys use time code now to launch those, don't you? Well, a lot of people, yeah, time code's a big deal these days. For us uh, older pyro guys, we're kind of like, uh, we want to take on time code because we still think we can shoot that good. But uh, mm-hmm. it makes sense. I mean, it's a, it, everything is, uh, you know, dead on every night, you know. Uh, yeah, so you guys are caught up with, uh, like, the lighting guys, time code for everything. The only people who are true to the faders are front of house and monitors. Oh, uh, we well, you know we what? We don't use time code. Yeah, I have you seen me <laughs> use time code ever? I don't use time code myself. I am time code. Ah, oh, there it is. It <laughs> <laughs> is time code. There it is. Well, I, that actually raises an interesting question. Yeah. I, I mean, so, I mean... I, I don't remember who, but one of you referenced technology. And we do talk about that this business has become increasingly a technology business. I, I mean, part two of my question is, how does the technology side factor into pyro? I, I mean, again, time code being part of it. Um, but on the flip side of that, I, I, I guess part of me wants to ask, if you allow time code to run your technology and to run your pyro, does that actually in some way become a minor safety issue because you're no longer shooting, you're allowing a machine to shoot for you and we're dealing with fire here. And, you know, I, I'm just wondering if, if that it actually creates a risk. Well, there, there's somebody holding a dead man switch, what they call it. So, uh, you know, if anything weird happens, it can be shut off, you know, immediately. It's the same as if you were shooting it. But I, I do think, Matt, it does it does allow for people to fall into complacency. Because, yes. you know, you're not as focused into yeah. every beat of that song. I agree. And, you know, in, I'm going to say, seven out of ten performances nowadays have some form of choreography tied to that. And other performers on stage, aside from just, your lead artists you know you're really watching them and when you're in tune with that in tune with that song and following beat by beat watching where you're coming up to and you know you're familiar with the blocking because you've gone through it in rehearsals and you're you're really you know it allow it certainly allows for complacency in my opinion um you know we 
you know, we started doing time code with certain shows, but we end, you know, I still prefer to have flame type effects manually triggered first time code as opposed to the pyrotechnics because the, uh, the damage a flame can do to somebody, especially nowadays that we're into so many different liquids out there that essentially, you know, or, you know, have that clinging factor like a napalm to you. When, if you were to be hit or fall into the stream of it while it's firing off, it's just such a higher risk. And that complacency isn't something that we're ready to switch into. I'd rather have good, strong, disciplined, musically talented people to execute those cues. That was certainly what I was referring to. Tell us a little more, though, about technology and how that factors into pyrotechnics. Well, you know, what I've seen, you know, control system-wise, you know, the... The special effects guy kind of looks like the one-man band. Um, you know, you, audio, lighting, automation now. You know, there's some sophisticated control systems out there that uh, technicians are using. And, you know, as the pyrotechnician, you have your DMX console running a certain group of effects. You have your pyrotechnic controller that are follow different standards and approval processes to be allowed in certain states and different countries. And... The technology of the control systems really hasn't evolved that greatly. What what's really changed on a technology standpoint is different chemical mixtures they're working with on the actual pyrotechnics, primarily looking to reduce smoke, um, eliminate some of the black powder, eliminate more percent, a higher percentage of black powder, and reduce and replace it with a product called nitrocellulose, which is a cleaner burning propellant, and uh, it also allows. Because you're reducing that smoke, you get more vibrant colors. And certainly, you know, some companies have referred to it as, you know, they offer uh, high-def pyrotechnics or HD because it films better. It has less smoke residue. and doesn't create that cloud across the stage. Um, you know, we've seen technologies like that evolve in our industry more from a, from a chemistry standpoint in the actual manufacturing of the products. And then... Our technology continues to change in the flame effects, you know, where it started with, you know, a flame type effect. It led to flame bars. It changes to, you know, automated jets now that are moving at a X axis from left to right. Then the technology, you know, someone said, I want to shoot one of these upside down. We started working on technology of how to hold the fluids and be able to utilize an effect inverted without actually, you know, you know, is uh, the basic physics is fire burns up. And so when developing these technologies, working on inverted flame effects is ensuring that you don't actually, you know, it's, it's not a one-shot wonder for your piece of equipment you just invested in that you don't burn the thing up trying to use it on a show, let alone cause a, an incident in an event. So, you know, it's really, the technologies really come down to either the chemicals and the pyrotechnics or the fluids being used to be able to, achieve those effects and that's you know that's really the some of the bigger areas we've seen in you know cryogenics companies have continually been trying to make a better co2 jet for the fact that you know, i come down to the east coast with you for a show we're going to have you know big white plumes of co2 gas we take that exact same show to las vegas or arizona and the artist is what happened to my effect you know, just the loss of humidity. So you see a lot of companies working on trying to adapt to those low humidity environments and be able to still keep a consistency in effect for the artist and the client. 
So I appreciate you walking us through a bit of the chronology and evolution of pyro, and I understand what you're saying about being able to replicate effects across different atmospheres, but where is pyro going if we could take that next step? Where, Technology-wise or otherwise, what, what is next in pyro? It's a great question. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, probably the biggest change aside from pyrotechnics, but in the special effects realm has really been around lasers over the last 10 years. If you remember the mid nineties, early two thousands of touring lasers, you had these large power supplies, water coolers, you you know, the pyro guy or laser operator had to find the Zamboni room at every arena to find a tap because everything was water cooled. And when the technology of uh, diodes came along, they were able to recreate those similar light waves, um, through now low voltage, you know, 110 volt, uh, you know, kind of a plug and play laser as a, you know, no longer required, it was all air cooled, no longer required water cooling, which is probably the biggest change in special effects technology wise, I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and continues, you continue to see new and really impressive laser technology, you know, it started as the five watt, I think we're now up, I think there's a 55 watt laser out there now. Um, you know, people just continue to try to increase the power of it. As far as, you know, if I was to guess where do pyrotechnics go as the actual, you know, what we're more traditional to see, the, the color, the sparks, uh, the flashes. You know, I, I, if I was to guess, I'd see that going more along, you know, following more of a green pattern from an environmentally friendly product. You know, there's some companies we're working with right now if you look at, you know, if you take some of your past shows that you've done with Keith, those pyrotechnics are loaded. They're, they're a one-shot use. Uh, all those, you know, they're recycled cardboard tubes, but they go back to be recycled again. Um, or we're looking at more permanent tubes and reloadable charges, if that makes sense. I love that, actually. That makes tremendous sense. And I'm glad that you didn't say more sparklers and crap like that, because I'll be honest, I'm not. A <laughs> they had, no, you know, you. You know when, <laughs> when those things came out, you know, and people were pushing, there's no permit required, which now requires a permit. But it was never, it was never a concern. It was just a different layer of media we were adding to shows that we were already doing pyrotechnics in. Um, it was a, you know, it was something you get a little closer to the audience and a little more artist interaction with, but I don't see it as the as replacing the industry. Well, I certainly hope not. <laughs> and you mentioned the permitting, and I appreciate that because I wanted to loop Danielle back into this uh, conversation next. And Danielle, tell us a little more about the pre-planning that goes into pyro because there really is more so than uh, you know the with audio with lighting with video save for troubleshooting you put the equipment out it goes out for a period of time yeah you've got techs who are you know you know making upgrades and and troubleshooting along the way and what have you but pyro is different pyro requires more active daily engagement in moving it from place to place. Am I right? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, from start to finish, it's, 
you know, I, Bob always says, well, no, that tour is done. I mean, it, it sold the route on the road. I was like, that's not true, Bob. <laughs> um, I mean, every day needs a permit. And in some places you need even permits for CO2. I mean, that's not everywhere, but, you know, flame, we're working with explosive materials. Um, even though it's low level, it still counts. And fire departments are very much on top of that so you know every show needs a permit some are easier to get than others um, other people want you to give blood samples um, <laughs> not actually but <laughs> uh, and then you know day to day you probably see fire marshals on site or inspectors that are probably picking through your entire stage to decide if they're gonna let Keith do what he does every day um, and then another layer to that is you know the shipping of of hazmat there are some areas that if you want to actually ship pyrotechnics into a city you need an escort so we you know we're trying to avoid that so you drop ship to certain locations you have to make sure there's nothing left on the truck it's a uh, <laughs> it's definitely a lot of logistics a lot of uh just staying on top of where the tour is going when the tour is going there and and trying to follow all the rules and make sure we're not upsetting anybody and giving people like Keith, the ability to do what they do every day with as little trouble as possible. I think one, one interesting side that Danielle really sees day to day more than myself or Keith is the lead time requirements for, for permitting in North America. When you have some cities require 30 days, some you can pull it off two days before, but really when you get in, you know, certainly as we've seen our industry turn into an international market, we have, you know, Danielle certainly can speak best on South America and pyrotechnics. Oh. I know that's her favorite. So. <laughs> I don't want to talk about South America. <laughs> you need four months if you want to get anything into those countries. So it's uh, it's always a, a hard battle um, trying to either make design decisions or, you know, sometimes tourists don't know for sure where they're going, when they're going. And it's uh, definitely a hard balancing act when we get into places like South America. From a from a dangerous goods perspective. Well, another element that that you didn't even mention that I would imagine is is among the biggest challenges, and South America has got to be, you know, as challenging a place as anywhere, is the need for sourcing where you can't actually ship or you don't have the time or you won't be granted the permit because it can't come from where it was and it needs to be used you know, needs to derive somewhere within the country and the specifications are different. And I mean, tell us a little about that. I've definitely been in situations where, you know, either you're just not able to import, um, the country just doesn't allow it. It happens a lot in the, the Middle East. If you ever um, happen to have a show there, a lot of cities in China also just don't allow it at all. Um, but ultimately it, it's trying to find a, somebody local that either has connections with our manufacturers that have, you know, once a year they bring a bunch of stuff in and, you know, they have something that matches up with what we're looking for. Or we've also dealt with uh, having someone say, yeah, 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 my product looks like that. And then they get on site and I've had more than one technician call me and say, I can't use this. I'm like, I'm sorry, I tried. <laughs> 
stuff. Yeah. I, I remember more than one middle of the night call to a pyro <laughs> provider saying, um, remember how you promised us this? That's not what the fuck we just got. <laughs> yep. I've gotten those calls for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce a concept that I haven't told anybody on this podcast before. And I think that pyrotechnics factors into what I'm saying. So Danielle, I want your opinion on this. Okay. I think as this industry comes out of the pandemic, there is going to be a growing need for more local resources and sourcing of more local products in more parts of the world than before, where shipping is going to be more challenging, where if we're still dealing with restrictions from pandemic or otherwise, timelines don't work. Again, to your what you just said about logistics and pre-planning, Bob, you mentioned this. And I think there will be a growing need for a, a individual companies that can help with the sourcing, not just in pyro, but in audio, in lighting, in video, in other areas of production. So I'm, the question is, is this a model what you do now, what you deal with in pyro every day, is this a model which can be applied to other areas of the business? I think it probably really depends on the the technology available in the given areas. Because um, I know a lot of the issues we run into are more um, bureaucratic. Like they won't issue an import permit. So a lot of these companies could buy the pyrotechnics that are made in the U S or the video equipment that's made in the U S or in Europe, but their, their governments won't let them bring it in. Um, so I think that's where even now, uh, in, or even before in the model we were working with, that's where we get stuck a lot. It's the government preventing something that is safer to come into the company. So a lot of these, the, or sorry, into the country. So these companies are creating something that is close enough, but it's, it, it doesn't meet our standards for safety or for, you know, usability. And a lot of times tubes blow up. And I'm sure that's probably true of, of all of the electronic equipment as well. Uh, I can only imagine. <laughs> I would imagine you're right. I, I'm, I know that you're right. But I would also say that, again, sourcing in especially a place like South America or Asia is a problem unto itself. And the financials of shipping as opposed to you know, sourcing alternatives becomes more challenging. So the notion of with planning to send that gear from Australia to Southeast Asia, as opposed to, you know, your home base in London or LA or what have you, I, I feel like there needs to be a model, especially from a sustainability perspective, where it's not just the finances, but, you know, the environmental considerations that make a model like that more of a viable solution for future. Definitely. You know, I know from, from an equipment standpoint and special effects, we've started a model working, you know, essentially creating, you know, allies and alliances where, you know, we essentially have created a, a mutual dry hire opportunity between some trusted vendors overseas and utilizing our own equipment footprint that, you know, if they have artists coming over, 
we can support that equipment because these are companies that we're buying, we're utilizing the same equipment footprints or same types of equipment or product types. So if they come over to North America, we have equipment to rent them, they take out. So where production's only bringing their crew over and we support the back end side, vice versa, when we go over to Europe or the Middle East, working with these same alliances, you know, the, the biggest thing that I say that hinders us at times is, uh, you know, forecasting. Uh, you know, I'd say the average pyro vendor on an average tour is probably brought in at best five weeks before the tour. Um, knowing that that tour has been planned at least a few months in advance, whether you know the exact design or not, it at least allows the vendor to be able to work with their partners and be able to uh, properly plan to be able to hold those resources, allowing the ability to minimize cost for productions. You know, I, I just I look at a classic example of a stage we worked on where the artist wanted a flame bar while we were in rehearsals. And it would have been a very low cost effect to put in, but at the time the stage had already been designed and built and all the joists were running up to downstage and there was no room to lay a flame bar in. Had they, you know, had the, had the effects vendor been involved in some of the earlier planning, would have been able to say, you know, this could be an interesting idea or you have this effect you like. We need to think of the stage going from a left to, you know, joists going left to right to allow to be able to implement those effects. And, uh, you know, I've always referred uh, as the pyro guys, kind of the redheaded stepchild, where last into the budget and first one to be out of the budget, and that usually goes hand in hand with the the lead time that effects vendors are given. You're not the last in the budget. Audio is. Come <laughs> on, you're, you're not going to have a show without speakers, but you can have a show without flames. <laughs> we can have a show without speakers because they do it all with lights and video now. We just, we're, we're second. Uh, Kyle, I actually, I was going to call on you to see if you were going to take exception to that. Video and automation takes precedent over everything now. Lights, then pyro, then audio. We're dead last. It's true. It's true. I'm going to say audio goes into the budget before pyro, but pyro might come out, but audio might also come out of the budget before pyro. I think both of those things are true. It really depends on your artist. We we would get stripped of some speakers before you got to get rid of some dragons. (laughs) This is true. Well, it's not fair if you have 24 speakers and only eight flames. That's not fair. (laughs) Come on. Trade a couple speakers for flames any day. Look, you can feel your your flames outside of the venue. I mean, Our speakers, thank you, thank we you very get much. Clipped. We get clipped real quick. Oh, we need more fire over here. Well, we could take four speakers away, and then all of a sudden, now you can't hear anything. Well, how come it looks so good? Well, well something going to sacrifice. It looks good. Looks, the sound gets sacrificed for the looks. That's interesting because you know, I've always, you know, one of the things that's always drawn me to special effects is it's one of those few industry one of those few elements that you can bring to a gathering of people that caters to so many senses so many of your human senses it's visual it's audio everyone knows the smell of pyrotechnics and fireworks i mean you can you can be walking down the street and smell them at night and you're like oh someone's setting off fireworks um you know it just it triggers you know to me it's always been something that has so much 
human connection in the way it relates in an event or a show. And, uh, I mean, they also get their own room. So audio does not get its own room. Yeah. Well, you you know, you you go back to that. The key of that room is nine times out of, they're called nine times out of 10. It's usually a referee locker room, but it's usually a room that has a shower in it. And that's probably one of the biggest perks is being a pyro guy on the road is having your own shower. Well, that was the closest I got to an answer to what actually happens in that pyro room, too. Because uh, it's not lost on me that I asked the question and nobody answered. Yeah. A lot less happens in those pyro rooms. Right the, yeah, a lot less happens in those rooms in the last decade than maybe a couple decades ago. Yeah, before. it's kind of like the Fight Club, you know. <laughs> That'll be in the book or in the movie or whichever. Um, Danielle, I've got a question for you. Uh, um, is it rare to see women in the business? Are you one of the rarities and therefore have a great reputation for being that? Or I, uh, is it not something that's a, that's a big deal in the industry? I say when I started, um, I don't think we had any female technicians at all. I was one of two women uh, that worked at Pyrotech Special Effects. Um, but, you know, coming over to Pyrotechnico, we have probably more female special effects technicians than we do male at this point. I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but it, it's a much different. I think uh, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's pretty close. And, and almost our whole production team for the effects side is female. I think Keith is one of the few men Except that is me. uh, on all of our calls. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's definitely shifting recently. Um, I don't know if that's a company difference or if it's really a, a change in the industry that we're in. But it's nice to see from my perspective. So when I started, that was not the case. Yeah, I can imagine that being a gratuitous part of it. Um, yeah, that would be interesting because I know on tour, I've never seen, I don't recall ever having seen any women pyro teams out there. So that's nice to hear. It is changing. It definitely is changing. I mean, they were few and far between. But I mean, as Danielle said, Keith is one of two males in the production team. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate that the owner of the company, his daughter, who's the fifth generation in the family in the company now, is one of our lead operators and manages a lot of our, you know, our larger tours for the company. And I look at her, she's at the age of 23, and I look at the level of responsibility she carries with our clients and representing the company. And I look back to where I was at 23 and I did not carry that much professional maturity at that point in my life. That's for sure. Well, Dallas, I appreciate you asking that question and I, I appreciate the answer as well. We, we always talking about the need for more women in the business. It's great to hear. I honestly wouldn't have thought that you'd have a female dominated office. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Kudos to, uh, to Pyrotechnico for that. Danielle, you also referenced Pyrotech, your former company, and, and I didn't use it by name when I introduced you guys, but have a relationship with those guys. And, and I'd be remiss not to say that there is at least one woman over there, still there to my knowledge, who I'm very fond of, and, and she's great. And certainly she has been at any number of shows that uh, I've been on the road with and uh, always appreciate that. So I just wanted to call out to her if she's listening. I, I, I do appreciate her as well. And again, more women in the business, the better. 
Absolutely. And you know, when, when my time ended with the, that company in the office, we had plenty of, plenty of women working there and just kicking butt every day. And the, the number of women on the road had definitely increased from in the 11 years that I was there. So it's always, always nice to see. Now I do have to ask though, as, as just one qualifier, again, I, Given my limited experience, you can tell me, shut the fuck up. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm always open to that. But I don't know of any female shooters. Would there, you say, do you have female shooters in house? Oh, yeah. We yes. have several, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, I'd say if not 10, over 10 female yeah. shooters. Wow. Come. Yeah. Okay. Well, next time I call you guys, I don't want Keith. Give me, give me another. <laughs> Man, Just I don't kidding. blame you. Just kidding. <laughs> there goes the job security. There it goes. What's he doing on this podcast? Fuck. What the heck is that guy doing here? Just kidding. Really, just kidding. Um, but actually, Keith, let me bring you back in. I mean, is there anything else about being a, a shooter that you feel like our our listeners should know? I I love that Bob said that uh, he made a, an allusion to the fact that shooters should have musical backgrounds. Well, I, I've told <laughs> you do, but I can't remember. Um, it, it, it helps if you can count to four. Uh, you know, um, but no, it, sometimes three. Yeah, it it uh, that certainly helps if you have uh, a little bit of a little bit of rhythm in you. But um, yeah, I mean that's a big part of it. It's uh, sometimes there's sometimes it's really intense where you're actually part of the you're you're it's a different instrument. You're part of the band. You're hitting stuff just like anybody else on stage, and you have to be right there with them. You know, so there it is. That's the fun part. I I really like doing that. I enjoy that. And, and, and again, going back to your wrestling experience, I mean, is there anything else that has kind of cross applications that, that gives you an edge or that you think people should understand about, about pyro? I learned a lot about doing pyro for television on that. Cause it's a whole different world doing it for television as opposed to doing it for like a live concert. Cause you're shooting for the camera, not for the audience. So on the award, on the uh, wrestling shows, the audience was just props, really. They were just props there. Uh, it was all for the camera. So that taught me a lot, too. For well, speaking of shooting for the camera and not for the audience, then, I mean, given the times right now, and aside from the fact that this year's 4th of July was just ridiculous, and it's not because cities and states were authorizing, and again, I can only speak to the U.S., I'm not so sure... I know you guys have an outlet in Canada and overseas and whether there was a lot, you know, a lot of activity with, with large scale fireworks that you were a part of. Um, but in light of the virus and given the amount of virtual presentations, I know I've seen a lot of lasers, which you talked about before, Bob, but are you guys doing much with pyro and, and, and where that wrestling experience would actually give you an edge? Well, right now, I mean, we did a July 4th show. That's the only thing I have done at this point. Uh, yeah. But we did have not much virtual presentations, uh, live streaming events that have used Pyro. Yeah, we've, uh, we were fortunate that we had a client of ours in Florida that took their traditional 4th of July show on the beach. And they decided that they wanted to make it a stay-at-home event and still celebrate Fourth of July for its community. 
And what they did was four undisclosed locations where we did four firework sites. And, you know, through technology, we do a lot of work in simulations and uh, different visual softwares for our clients. We were able to sit with them and work through the elevations of their community and identify, you know, if we use this size of a firework, X number of people within so many miles would be able to still see the show and kind of plot our four firing sites to be able to bring a 4th of July show to the community. And that was also televised, which it was a really great experience to be part of seeing, you know, a different logistical planning going into what would have traditionally been, you know, arranging for barges and ensuring that the, the team was safe out on the ocean there through that, through that event. And it went from essentially one show to four shows and uh, brought a grander experience to the community. And, and we were, ran a case study of you know, the, the three successful models that we felt that we participated in across the United States and studying the different shows they had to be able to bring a, an event to your community yet still keep everyone at a home, a home front type of environment. There it is. Well, you guys have been great, and I really appreciate your time. At this point, we usually move into our quick hits, where I would ask you each, I suppose, your first tour, briefly. Bob? My first tour was Kiss. That's a big one. There you go. It was great. Danielle? Well, I've never actually been on tour. I, I am the home base at the office but the first uh, tour I remember working on was My Chemical Romance. I was faxing permit applications when I first started. Well you said the word fax. I did. Wow. Yeah. I used to know how to use a fax machine. Wow. <laughs> Classic. Danielle you're not that old. I know it. I have seen you. You're not that old. Keith what about you? Uh, my first legit pyro tour I guess was Two Live Crew. Uh, Two old... group. Luke Campbell, yeah. Luke, brother Luke, and, the uh, and the boys. Yeah, Luke's on. I That's go way it. back. Miami Bay Sound. That's yeah. the way to go. Some interesting stories with that man. He was awesome, though. Can Good you stuff. tell us that one? he's still awesome? He's he he yeah. is incredible. What he does in this community and what he fights for. Just had to interject and give a man props because he is Luther Campbell is a bomb. Still so, to this day, he's, he's to this still day. on it. Yeah, he's. Uh, unbelievable what he does in the community down there we love that guy absolutely yeah come on Keith, give us a taste of... never mind what you got kyle excited go ahead kyle tell I us what he wants to of, you know but we won't he's a king of ass let's oh. give it up um <laughs> yeah no backstage pass what <laughs> uh i felt well we did a show where he got it was basically he is in a hot tub and it gets lowered in on four motors and uh, he's in there with two girls in the hot tub. And, Full of ass. Yeah, so apparently one of the motors dies, so it, it stuck halfway in the air. Reger had to repel in, fix the motor. So Luke's up there, well, you know, just whatever. Might as well while you're up there. And uh, put on his own little show. I mean, that's how he was. He, I can't really say anymore, I guess. But, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I won't, I won't push for more. You get the so gist. Separate from two live crew, can do you have a best moment that you can share with us, Keith? Oh, like touring uh, with well, when I toured with Timberlake, he was probably the coolest guy out there. Um, 
really good guy, family, like uh, home feeling. Uh, my brother passed away when we were on tour in England and he kind of made sure I got home right away and took care of everything. Good dude. Really good dude. Uh, I did a lot of the pop tours for a long time. So they were all good, like family, uh, family based type scenarios. So yeah, those are all good. I appreciate that. Danielle. Uh, you know, I don't know if I have a best moment. I have a fond memory of, of Keith that I can, I can reference <laughs> <laughs> uh, back when he used to tour all the time. He doesn't do much of that now, but uh, he uh, would call on show days only when there was an issue. And then one day, I guess he got wise that he could listen to me panic on the phone if he called on a show day and nothing was wrong. So looking back, that's a fun memory. I was actually going to mention that because I used to love <laughs> to call you to hear your voice, answer the phone like, at like four o'clock on a show day. Like, oh shit, what happened? <laughs> Why are you calling me? Something must be horribly wrong. Yeah, all good. I mean, did you tell her anything crazy that had happened? I mean, what 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 did you tell her? Well, I would just say, hey, what you know, what's going on over there? What's the weather like? Just you know, just say hey. <laughs> And just she immediately would immediately think that I was just like calling saying there was some problem because it was right around fire marshal time in the afternoon. Technicians do not call me on show day unless there's a problem. They call other yeah. days to chat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right. Bob, yeah. what about you? Uh, I've uh, got a lot of good ones, but probably the most recent one that was uh, really exciting was Keith and I recently just did an award show last year. Um, and it was a 18 and a half minute tribute song of this art. You know, this artist was winning a lifetime achievement award and uh, trying to keep track of that song uh, during a phase of 18 minutes. We did the first rehearsal. We got into dress rehearsal and the artist decided to sit in the audience and not sing the lyric and not sing. Oh, yeah. And Keith and I, we... We were so lost. I had two stopwatches going. I'm trying to watch blocking. We got cues coming up. And finally, I looked at Keith. I'm like, just turn the key off. I'm like, we are, we are lost. And it, you know, it wasn't, a, wasn't a successful execution, but it was, a, again, played on the side of safety. And it just, Keith and I are both up there ready to go. And then we're like, where's the words? Like, oh, we had shit. no idea where we were in the song. Uh, that only, only three people knew, and it was three people in the band. <laughs> yeah, stage manager had no clue. They're looking at me, asking to cue them to send in the one of the uh, featured guests that were performing. It's like, where are we? Like, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, it was just, you could, it's one of those you can't make those moments up type of things that occurred in our life. And uh, I've been fortunate that most of those moments I've had in my life have been have been with Keith, and uh, they've been good times. That's for sure. Absolutely. So this is a tough one, a little bit tougher than if there's one thing about the industry you'd like us to change or do better coming out of the current coronation, what is it, Bob? Hmm. You know, I think if I was to you know, look at one thing that our industry needs is primarily the, you know, creating you know, a wellness environment for our technicians on the road. You know, we, we all know we work long hours. We do it because we love it. And, uh, you know, we, we are gluttons for punishment. And, uh, you know, the word failure I don't feel exists in many of the people I've had the opportunity to work with. But one thing when you're, 
you know, you, a lot of us start young on the, in this industry as well. And the one thing that's never really been there in a support side has been yeah, how to financially plan for your future. You know, your, your body as a roadie is only going to take you so far. Um, you know, what are, you know, looking at companies to create succession plans where they bring you on, train you, put you out on the road in your time, but create a future and an opportunity to go into a management or a sales or a technical, you know, a technical support standpoint to you know, create more of a longevity than just a contract employee that so many of us have played the role as in different tours. I mean, that would be, that'd be one thing I'd love to see all of, you know, our competitors and all the different vendors work on is creating a, you know, a knowledge base, you know, like I said, from financial planning to, you know, kind of throw in dietary and physical health too. Yeah, it's a fairly get... comprehensive answer, actually. Not yeah. ex- more than not exactly one thing there, Danielle. No. That's going to be a tough one to top. What do you got? I was going to say I just agree with Bob. So maybe I'll take his physical wellness and and health, and he can have the financial planning. <laughs> I mean, you you look at it, Matt. You you know, you went to the gym. You warm up. You stretch. You know, we go in and start lifting boxes and cases and motors and trusts, and usually we make a quick stop to get two cups and catering, one for coffee and the other one to throw some sticks of bacon or sausage in and go right back to the dock and start lifting. And uh, I just look at the, uh, an opportunity to create a healthier environment for us. Yeah, a lot of times uh, on-site meals can be kind of uh, – scarce or real quick you're not even sitting down to eat you're running you know that's that's a big thing at some point i think those are all great answers although mostly keith and danielle you just kind of stole bob's but i'll i'll, I'll leave it alone. yeah we're good we had a good answer <laughs> we're right no he had a great answer great and answer, truth Bob. Told, you know, we've asked this of everybody, and and increasingly that is the most common. You know, and 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 I'm glad to hear it. I, I think that you're right on the money. All of it, the cater, the the health, the wellness, the the financial planning, all of it, and it, mental it, health also. Well, yes, absolutely, mental health definitely is a factor. Well. I got a softball to get you out of here then because you guys have been great. Uh, reverse order again. Keith, shout outs or parting shots? Uh, really, the shout out to uh, everybody at Pyrotechnico, the family that uh, has welcomed me there. It's been now officially a year. Uh, so everybody there has been great, and I appreciate that. Also to uh, where I used to work, everybody there. Loved them all too. And uh, shout out to uh, my family and my peeps. And Chris Lee and Kyle Hamilton, Christina, Christine Dallas, everybody. That's about it. Danielle? Um, Giving a shout out to everyone at Pyrotechnicos. Like Keith, uh, you've been very welcome there and you immediately feel like part of the family and they're all just awesome people. Um, And... uh, you know, everybody at Pyrotech as well. I definitely, definitely miss a lot of those people. They were family for a very, very long time. And uh, just saying hi to everybody. Excellent. And you, Bob? I got uh, to give a shout out to my competitors because they push me to up my game every day. And uh, yeah, you need motivation. And I'm fortunate to have great competitors out there that push me to try to leap those, uh, leap those tall skyscrapers and cross those boundaries. 
and uh, ah, I got to give a shout out to my mom because otherwise I'd be a uh, defunded law enforcement officer right now if I hadn't have, uh, listened to her and took the easy way out. So, Well, we appreciate you guys being on the program. Keith Hellebrand, Danielle Hicks, Bob Ross, Pyrotechnico, you guys have been great. Another one in the can. Like I said, I believe this is number 30. We're having a great time here. We appreciate our listeners. We uh, look forward to doing it again and again. We definitely welcome you guys to come back, to join us again, to tell us more about the changing world of pyrotechnics. To my co-hosts, Dallas, Banks, Kyle, appreciate y'all. To our listeners, it's a pleasure to be here with you every Tuesday, Thursday. We appreciate your support. And on that note, just a quick reminder. Well, I'd be remiss, Sam, our tech support. I got to thank Sam. Sam is fantastic. He's our behind the scenes guy. Always got to give a shout out to him. And of course, he'd be remiss if, well, he'd be, I'm not using that word right. He'd be upset with me if I did not tag HLUB podcast on Instagram and hustlelikeyoubroke.com. As always, send us your questions. Let us know your thoughts. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you all. And-